everybody. Welcome to the show. I got a little beepy laptop in front of me that I got to try to fucking plug in the thingy. Um, yeah, it's going to be one of those days where it just can't stop beeping. Can't stop, won't stop. Um, <clears throat> but apart from the malfunctioning laptop, which is always an issue, uh, we have a pretty awesome show today. So I have another non-scandal scandal for you. Bernie Sanders is getting a bunch of bullshit from um, a bunch of idiots who are trying to come up with any and all arguments they can to try to get him. So I'm going to open with that in a second. It involves Fox News and Bernie's decision to do a town hall with them. So um, we'll dive into that in just a minute. But we also have Joe Biden. He responded to some of the allegations of inappropriate touching against him. (laughs) He didn't apologize, but he just kind of rambled for quite a while in a video he like tweeted about this. So we'll talk about that. I also may have a new favorite all-time Trump tweet. Those are always fun. He, uh, he's shooting from the hip, and the more he talks, the more that's obvious. Then we have Fareed Zakaria and Chris Saliza from CNN both deciding to embarrass themselves publicly with horrendous takes. John Kasich, as well, decides to come out of his uh, obscurity to remind everybody he's a Dumas. And, uh, yeah, Fox Business goes after the Pope. It's a, it's a jam-packed show. A lot of little videos for you. But anyway, without further ado, let's get started. And uh, we're going to do that with the Bernie Sanders non-scandal scandal. Here we go. So it's a day that ends in Y, so it's time for another non-scandal scandal involving Bernie Sanders, America's dad. Here's what Newsweek says. Democrats question Bernie Sanders' loyalty for his plans to appear at Fox News Town Hall. Conservatives applaud. So this news broke yesterday that Bernie's team indeed is going to do a Fox News Town Hall. Now, in 2016, Bernie Sanders did a Fox News town hall, as did Hillary Clinton. And the reason why this is a story, well, there's multiple reasons why it's a story, but uh, the DNC recently decided, no, we're not going to allow Fox News to host a debate. And the reason we're not going to allow Fox News to host a debate is because we're seeing them for what they are. They're a propaganda organization, and it's not going to be fair, and we don't trust them to be fair. So we are going to, sorry for the beeping in the background, this is going to be something that happens throughout the show, malfunctioning laptop, okay. (laughs) All right, let's temporarily unplug it and we'll plug it back in in a little bit. Um, Where was I? So the reason why this is an issue is the DNC made the opposite decision And so now people are saying, well, why aren't you following suit with the DNC? How can you do this? They're a terrible network. Some people go as far as to say they're just a flat-out white nationalist network. So now you're an apologist, you're an enabler, um, and all these arguments. Now, 
I actually, we discussed this issue recently on a talk I did with uh, humanist report Mike Figueredo and uh, Sahil Habibi, Progressive Voice. It was on Progressive Voice's uh, channel, and we were debating the idea of responsible platforming, and uh, that conversation involved Joe Rogan and Glenn Greenwald. They weren't there, but the topics included them. Um, and one of the things we got to was, okay, well, what about the DNC's decision to not host a debate on Fox News? And my reaction to it was, I'm, I'm very torn because I see both sides of that issue. On the one hand, it's 100% true and factual to say they're a propaganda arm of the Republican Party and they're not going to give you a fair shake. That's 100% true. So the whole point is going to be a hit job. It's a coordinated hit job from the top down. That's what's going to happen. And if you, if you go into it knowing that, okay, fair enough. But they made the decision, let's just not pretend like they are serious because they're not serious people and let's not go there. Now, by the same token, CNN is also unserious, MSNBC is unserious, albeit for different reasons. For MSNBC, they're the Democratic Party, um, you know, apologist network. They're the propaganda arm of the DNC, which is why the DNC loves them. But, you know, mainstream media across the board is really shitty and dumb. But the other um, philosophy is, no, it's not about, okay, you know what they are. Fair enough, we got it. But now you go in there, you go into the lion's den, and you run shit. And you're, it doesn't matter. You're not trying to sway the anchors whose job is going to be to do a hit piece on you. You're attempting to sway the tiny percentage of people in the audience who would be receptive to your message. Now, admittedly, 90% of the Fox News audience is not going to be receptive to, to your message, and they're just going to hate you even more by the end of it. Fair enough. But there is going to be 10% or maybe 5%, if we're being harsh about it, who are going to go, oh, shit, it sounds like Bernie Sanders is looking out for me. And those are the people you're trying to get. So uh, is this actually a scandal? I would say absolutely not, because what Bernie Sanders is doing here is akin to the 50-state strategy. That's what he's doing. What he's attempting here is, like, if Bernie Sanders went and did a couple rallies in Mississippi, would anybody say, ah, this guy's a sellout. He's an apologist for far-right politics because Mississippi is one of the most, if not the most, conservative state in the country. Nobody would say that. Everybody would say, oh, he has a 50-state strategy. He wants to get as many votes as possible in as many places as possible. So, yeah, he went to a, the most conservative state because he believes in his message so much that he thinks it can even convince people who are diehard on the other side of, of the issues. Now, this actually reminded me, this non-scandal scandal, the first thing that popped in my mind is an old segment we did from 2017 – Bernie Sanders uh, did a town hall on MSNBC with Chris Hayes. But what they did is they went to West Virginia, rural Trump country, to the core. And Bernie Sanders got a room full of avowed Trump voters to cheer for leftist policies, Medicare for all, free college, living wage, and a bunch of his policies, an infrastructure deal. So... If you think like, oh, there's nothing good that comes out of this, you're just wrong. Because Bernie Sanders is a, is a character who the nature of his politics makes it so that the base loves him. But then also that streak of populism that he has and anti-establishment politics and anti-elitism, that's something that is appealing to people across party lines 
assuming the people on the other side are average Joes, are regular folks. He's never going to convince the establishment Republicans. He's never going to convince the establishment Democrats. He's just not going to convince the establishment. But can he get crossover votes from average Joes on the right? Yes, he can. And another fact I always go back to is uh, during the 2016 election, primary election, Bernie Sanders overwhelmingly beat Hillary Clinton among Democrats who self-described as more conservative. Now, you might say that makes no sense because Hillary is literally more conservative. That's true. But it turns out people just don't know labels. So they think, like, I don't know, I guess I'm a conservative kind of Democrat. But then when you go issue for issue, it turns out they're massively populist. And they're left wing. And so they liked Bernie, and they didn't try to care to categorize or, or label his politics. They just said, I like that guy. It sounds like he's looking out for me. So, yes, Bernie should, can and should take his message anywhere and everywhere. And at the same time, I didn't really go after the DNC for choosing not to go on Fox, because I get that side of the argument as well. I also totally get Bernie's side, because he just believes in his message so strongly, he says, even though it's going to be a hit job, even though, uh, you know, it's going to be probably unfair, I'm preaching to the 10% of the audience that'll listen, 5% of the audience that'll listen, and we need to reach out to everybody. So he's not scared of bringing his message anywhere, and... um I think it's really gross when people try to, and this happened. People are really saying like, oh, he's a white nationalist enabler. He's an apologist to the far right. And nothing could be further from the truth. The whole point of him going to these, going on a place like Fox News is to try to make people believe in left politics and to try to switch their vote and switch their allegiance and get them to see the light. And I've grown very sick and tired of, insular lefties who all they want to do is talk to the people who already agree with them and jerk each other off in their own little bubble. And, okay, if you want to do that, fine, but just understand that you're not getting anywhere. You're not changing any minds. You're not making it likely so that the left will actually win in the long run. And it's, it's obnoxious. Like, they're obnoxious, the people who would flip out over this. So don't do it. Don't do it. And listen, there are some people who mean well who are like, no, seriously, we got to try to, you know, get advertisers to flee from Fox or whatever. Fox isn't going anywhere, man. They're not going anywhere. I hate to tell you, they're not going anywhere. And in the extreme example where they do go somewhere, which they won't, One America News Network, which is even further right, would fill that gap. You want to know why? Because there's a market for that kind of nonsense. There's a market for the far right outrage peddlers and fear merchants. There's a market for that. So some, somebody's always going to fill that marketplace, and then you're never going to get all the advertisers to go, oh, I guess we'll flee from a ratings powerhouse. Fox News is number one in the ratings. So you think you're going to get every um, advertiser to go, oh, I am also outraged by some words that some of them said, so I'm not going to advertise there. No, because there are plenty of companies that have conservative owners, conservative boards, and they're not going to abandon a ratings powerhouse for saying some offensive stuff. So honestly, for the people who are like trying to do this long-term boycott of Fox News or whatever, you're pissing into the ocean. Like you're not, that's, you're, not make, you're not making a difference. You're pissing into the ocean. So sorry, I think that's the reality of the situation. So we have to deal with things as they are. And if you're dealing with things as they are, well, I mean, I guess one of the best things you could possibly do is go to the lines then and try to change some minds. 
And I think that's what Bernie's up to. And am I mad at him for this? Not in the slightest. Okay. All right, let's try... Before we get to our next one, let's try to plug this bitch in again. I don't know what it is. This The needle for the charging port or whatever has been bent for a long time, but recently it's gotten worse, and it's just like, ugh, make it stop. All right, that is definitely not staying. I muted it so you don't have to hear the beep, beep, beep. But I need the I need the laptop for uh, for video clips. So, needless to say, we're a mess here on Secular Talk. All right, let me pull up the Biden clip. Okay, let's talk about Uncle Biden responding to the allegations against him. So Joe Biden, or as we call him, Hansy Uncle Joseph, responded to some of the inappropriate touching allegations against him. Um, Now, since he released this video on Twitter, there's been three more allegations. The night before that, there were two. The original one was Lucy Flores. So kind of like the dam broke on this one. But let's see what he has to say about it, and then we'll discuss. Mind, I expect to be talking about a whole lot of issues, and I'll always be directed. But today, I want to talk about just as a support and encouragement that I've made to women and some men that have made them uncomfortable. And I've always tried to be, uh, in my career, I've always tried to make a human connection. That's my responsibility, I think. I shake hands, I hug people, I, I grab men and women by the shoulders and say, you can do this. And, and, uh, and whether they're women, men, young, old, it's, it's the way I've always been. It's the way I've tried to show I care about them and I'm listening. And over the years, knowing what I've been through, the things that I've faced, I've found that scores, if not hundreds of people have come up to me and reached out for solace and comfort, something, something, anything that may help them get through the tragedy they're going through. And, and, uh, and, and so I, it's just, just who I am. And I've never thought of politics as cold and antiseptic. I've always thought about connecting with people. And I said, shaking hands, uh, hands on the shoulder, a hug, uh, encouragement. And now now it's all about taking selfies together. Uh, You know, social norms have begun to change. They've shifted. And the boundaries of protecting personal space have been reset. And I get it. I get it. I hear what they're saying. I understand it. And I'll be much more mindful. That's my responsibility. My responsibility, and I'll meet it. But I'll always believe governing, quite frankly, life for that matter, is about connecting, about connecting with people. That won't change, but I will be more mindful and respectful of people's personal space. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I've worked my whole life to empower women. I've worked my whole life to prevent abuse. I've written up. And, and so the idea that I can't adjust to the fact that personal space is important, more important than it's ever been, is, is, is just not thinkable. I will. I will. 
Now, at first, here were my thoughts on this. Uncle Joe is just Uncle Joe, and he is like handsy, but there's nothing nefarious about it. There's no malintent. There's no sexual intent there. Um, he's just being Uncle Joe. And I, there was, it wasn't that long ago where I actually would have totally bought his explanation of like, yeah, that's me. I'm like, a, you know, a loving guy, and that's how I communicate with people. But I've seen so much more since this scandal broke. There seems to be like an, just a, a mountain of video evidence of him not just being Uncle Joe and being somewhat touchy, but loving. There's also just videos that are beyond the pale by any reasonable standards. So what I mean by that is, it's not just like, oh, he puts his hand on, on his hands on people's shoulders and he says, you can do this. One of the things he's done repeatedly is he's kissed people on the forehead and on the head, and it's a hundred percent clear that they don't want that. And he, for whatever reason is obstinate and doesn't care and goes for it anyway, even though I sense that he knows that they don't want it, he does it. Another thing he does is he sniffs their hair. And that's another thing that's like, what are you doing? He'll stroke their hair. That's another thing that I'm like, what are you doing? And the one that really put me over the top is there's this video of him with a, with a very young Asian girl. I want to say maybe 10 years old. And he basically does everything in the book, and it's beyond creepy. He, you know, rubs her shoulders, caresses her hair, um, kisses her forehead, and then he rests his hand, like, right by her, her breast and leaves it there awkwardly. And I went from thinking, like, no, this is just Uncle Joe, to, like, no, he really is a handsy creeper, and I think he actually knows what he's doing. Like, I think he, it, in his mind, he's going, like, yeah, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And it's not cool. And then with all these women coming out now, basically, the sense you get is, the core point is, it's not that there's no malintent. It's that he's actually a creeper. And that seems to be what all these other women are indicating. And it's not, like, I don't think it's analogous to people who might just be affectionate people but aren't crossing a line. Like, I think if, it's, like, I think if there's a situation where, you know, you're taking, a, you're taking a picture and you're a politician and you put your arms around people and it happens to be on their hip or something, that's, I don't think that's necessarily bad. I don't think it's bad to even do the the two hands on the shoulders type thing. That's not, if somebody came out and said, oh, this is what somebody did to me, and then they described just the two hands on the shoulders, I'd be like, come on, you got, that's not what you, you're saying it is. That's not what you're implying it is. But in the case of handsy Uncle Joseph, it's really not just that. And the more I see of it, the more I'm like, dude, like, what are you doing? And, yeah, it's, uh, but here's the thing, man. Because then the next logical question is people are saying, does this disqualify him from running? And on that point, I have to say, no, I don't agree with the people who say this disqualifies him. But I also just flat out don't support him. And I also think that um, even if we weren't in the midst of a handsy Uncle Joseph Me Too scandal here, he wouldn't win either way. 
Like, I think that it's a mirage. It's a facade. It's fake, that the fact that he's, oh, he's leading in so many polls. It's because they oversample old people. And the idea of a Joe Biden presidency is a lot more appealing to people than the reality. And once he hits that campaign trail and starts talking, he's going to tank in the polls. Why do I say that? That's what's happened every other time he ran for president. He starts talking and he tanks in the polls. So I think even if this scandal didn't hit, he would not really be a non-factor in a race for president. And now with the scandal hitting, it, he, again, that just furthers the reality that he's going to be a non-factor. But the, the funny thing is he totally brought this upon himself, too, because he could have just not – like he could have just said, all right, you know what, I'm done with my political career. I was the vice president. I was a senator forever. So got it. I, I've had my run here. But no, his ego drew him back, and he wants to be president. And as a result of that, now the dam has broken. And all these weird accusations are coming in. Um, and then the other point that somebody made that I thought was a really good point is, if this is what he was doing, like, on camera, very publicly, the super over-the-top creepy handsiness, then what do you think he was doing behind closed doors? So anyway, uh, there's his – and the other point people made was, oh, this was a non-apology. He didn't apologize, and they were outraged as a result of that. But my response to that is, well, even if he did apologize, it's not like everybody who's going after him now would accept his apology and move on. So it's a little bit of a weird point, in my opinion, and a little bit of like a, a red herring response where it's like, oh, I, couldn't, I can't believe he didn't apologize. Yeah, but if he did apologize, your reaction would probably be, too bad. I don't really care that you're apologizing. So I don't, I don't think that's a great point, but I think that uh, either way he still wants to run, either way he's probably going to run, and with or without this scandal, he, he wouldn't be a factor anyway. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it all unfolds. But, yeah, Hansy Uncle Joseph is even more handsy and creepy than I originally thought. I probably would have largely defended him without seeing all this, like, new video evidence of how, re how bad it really is. Because I think that the other thing that pushed me over the top is it's so obvious that the people he's being handsy with don't want it, and he's not receptive to the signals they're sending out. And I think that's on purpose. I don't think he's a dumb guy. I think he gets the signals and he doesn't care, which is bad. So anyway, handsy Uncle Joseph. I can't wait to show you in a later segment. We don't have it for this one. But uh, obviously, Hansy Uncle Joseph is our nickname for Joe Biden. And um, we have the absolute best pictures for that. I mean, I think all of our nicknames are top-notch. Amy Cloudbuchar, Howard Schitt, uh, Battle of My Stork, so on and so forth. But Hansy Uncle Joseph might have the best pictures. And thanks to all you guys for sending them in because they're awesome. It's Joe Biden with, like, abnormally giant hands. <laughs> And it goes perfectly with his name, Hansy Uncle Joseph. Okay. Now we'll move on to Donald Trump's tweet. So I may have a new favorite all-time Trump tweet. Actually, you know what? That's not true. I think the favorites will always be all caps, no collusion, exclamation point, 
and witch hunt exclamation point because they're so funny and sometimes he sends them at like 4 a.m. <laughs> it's, just, it's just hilarious to me. Um, but this one uh, is great for other reasons you're about to see. Take a look. Trump said, everybody agrees that Obamacare doesn't work. Premiums and deductibles are far too high. Really bad health care. Even the Dems want to replace it. But with Medicare for all, which would cause 180 million Americans to lose their beloved private health insurance. Their beloved private health insurance. Dude. Dude. Thank you, Don. What a giant gift gift to any Democrats who now want to use that in the 2020 election. And if I were any of the Democrats, I would use that and hammer them over the head with it relentlessly. This reminds me of there was in the last election, in one of the debates, there were um, minimum wage protesters outside of a Republican debate. And the candidates were asked about it. And Donald Trump's response was like, um, wages, he said something like, wages are too high. And, you know, Bernie took that and just used it endlessly on the campaign trail because it shows you that this guy, sometimes he has these moments of honesty where what he really believes slips through the cracks and he just says it. And, you know, he was a business guy, and so he views it from the perspective of management and the owner class, and he thinks, like, oh, wages are too high. He doesn't want to pay people more, so he said it. Now, the other half of the time, he pretends to be economically populist and looking out for the little guy, but he just admitted. He said wages are too high. So Bernie clobbered him over the head with that relentlessly every time Bernie spoke. Uh, Donald Trump thinks wages are too high. Donald Trump thinks wages are too high. And he just, Trump every now and then will just shove his foot right in his mouth. And this is an instance right here where if Democrats want to politically take advantage of this, oh, good googly moogly. Now, here's my prediction. Here's my guess. Most of them will not. I think Bernie will. I think some of the others will. But I think most of them actually, they read a Trump tweet like this. And they want to run away from it in the sense that they want to say, no, no, me, Medicare for all. No, not it's not my, my position is not just Medicare for all. My position is Medicare for America, which is kind of like a public option, which means you can keep your private health insurance if you want to keep your private health insurance. Please, I see no problem with that at all. But then for the other people who want to buy into the Medicare for all, we can have the buy in for if you want to buy into Medicare for all. So in other words, they're responding. They get scared and they're scared of their own shadow and they run away which is Democrat idiocy 101, which is I don't know how to make a, a case and double down and argue for something that I'm supposed to believe in. Whereas Bernie, he will do that. And some of the others, I think, will do that. And, I mean, I'm telling you, man, this is as good as it gets. I would quote this shit in an attack ad in a second. Um, he called private health insurance Americans, quote, beloved private health insurance. Hmm. Who will think of Cigna? And Blue Cross Blue Shield. Hashtag Blue Cross Matters. I mean, what a joke. So insurance companies are despised. You want to know why? Because they're unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit mafia middlemen between you and your doctor. And for the record, they have actual death panels. Before you're approved for your insurance to cover a surgery for you or something, it has to, there's an actual decision that they make. 
And oftentimes they say, I don't know, we're going to just categorize this as experimental. We're going to say it's not, you know, it's not absolutely necessary. There might be other ways to do it, so we're not going to cover your surgery here. And there are decisions that are absolutely made from health insurance companies that are life and death decisions. And they don't always come down on the side of, yeah, we're going to cover it. By its very nature, think of how a for-profit health insurance company works. By its very nature, they make more money by denying more care. Think about that. That's mind-boggling, right? They make more money by denying more care. In fact, pre-Obamacare, there were entire departments uh, in these for-profit health insurance companies that engaged in a practice called rescission. You know what rescission is? It's where they go back and they try to look for any reason they can to nullify your contract with them when you need them the most. So you might be paying them $500 a month and then time comes where you need surgery. And they're like, well, we love to cover your surgery, but you never told us that you had acne when you were a teenager and that counts as a pre-existing condition. So therefore you lied to us. Therefore our contract is null and void and we're not covering dick. This is what the for-profit health insurance companies do. Putting aside their most evil practices and the fact that they are the literal death panels, what's your experience like with them? I'll tell you what my experience is like with them. My experience is they tell me every month, pay me a shitload of money. I pay them a shitload of money. Then when I need them to be there, when I got to go to the doctor for some reason, they, they go, okay, now you pay the first like five grand and then we'll pick it up. So why the fuck am I paying you every month? I got to pay the first five grand? What the fuck are you talking about? Insane co-pays, insane deductibles. You got the CEOs of these companies making tens of millions of dollars a year. You only have like 80% of the money going into the health insurance company, going to actual care. 20% is going to overhead costs. For Medicare for All, it's like 95% that goes to actual care. Only 5% goes to over, overhead costs. I mean, this is, we have an insane system in this country. We pay like double what other developed countries pay, and we still have like 30 million people who are uninsured, um, and we still have worse health outcomes. So this is, I mean, beyond absurd. This is ridiculous. And Donald Trump just said, beloved private health insurance, beloved private health insurance. Nobody has a connection to their health insurance company. People have a connection to their doctor. And oftentimes the health insurance companies get in between that as well. It's so funny, under Medicare for All, everybody's like, oh my God, the government's going to get between you and your doctor. What about the fucking health insurance company? I've experienced this. I had to switch from one health insurance company to another health insurance company. I wanted to stay with one doctor. I couldn't because it wasn't covered under the network. By the way, let me ask you a question. What happens when, for business reasons, for Politicon or whatever, I got to go to L.A. and I get, something happens in L.A. and I got to go to the hospital. And oh, would you look at that? Even with my supposed to be somewhat decent health insurance, there's no hospitals in L.A. that are covered under my network, and i got to pay everything out of pocket? This is the fucking system we have, and this son of a bitch calls them beloved private health insurance? Beloved. Beloved. What is wrong with you? Oh, he's up there in his ivory tower, man. Jesus Christ. Can Democrats please go to work on this? But they won't because they don't know what they're doing. Let me explain something to you. In Trump's terms so far, you know how many people have lost their health insurance? Seven million people. Seven million people. Why doesn't every American know that number? 
because the media doesn't talk about it much, and the Democrats don't scream it from the rooftops. Do that. Let everybody know. Under Trump, 7 million people lost health insurance. Scream it over and over and over and over and over and over. You know what else you should scream? Uh, the Trump care bill, the Republican health care bill that was supposed to be the replacement for Obamacare. And by the way, 7 million people lost health insurance because largely of Trump's executive orders on this. But uh, the Trump care bill has a 12% approval rating. And Trump's out there saying, the Republicans are going to be known as the party of health care. Your fucking bill has a 12% approval rating, you dipshit. What does Medicare for all have? 70%. God damn it, I need you to clobber him over the head with this stuff, man. This is embarrassing stuff. This is the President of the United States. And look at what he's saying. Beloved private health insurance. When they're one of the scourges on this country, man. So I like what Bernie said about this. Bernie, um, the Republicans, the RNC, did this attack against Bernie where they played a clip of him on Chris Hayes where he talks about eliminating private health insurance. And Bernie's response was, you're damn right, (laughs) which I love. Now, to be fair, under Bernie's bill, they still allow for supplemental private care. But it's just that, supplemental. The default is you're covered. And you're covered because we'll have a single-payer system like every other developed country. Um, But I like that fight, having that fight in them. They're like, oh, my God, you want to get rid of private health insurance? He's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Supplemental care, fine. Supplemental private health insurance, fine. But no, it's not the default anymore because the default is insane and is ruining people's lives. Something Donald Trump knows nothing about because he calls it, quote, beloved private health insurance. All right, now let's go to Fareed Zakaria, who, is, uh, who has become worse than I could have ever imagined. So Fareed Zakaria made an ass of himself talking about the issue of Venezuela and Russia. Take a look. Estimates of Russia's total investment in Venezuela vary from 20 to $25 billion dollars. The Venezuelan gambit appears to be personally significant for Russia's President Vladimir Putin. In recent years, as the Venezuelan economy has tanked and political instability has grown, even most Russian companies have abandoned the country, viewing it as too risky. But as Vladimir Ruvinsky writes in a Wilson Center report, Russian state-controlled oil giant Rosneft, which has close ties to Putin, has persisted and even ramped up its support for Maduro. In other words, Putin is all in with his support for Maduro. He is doing this in part to prop up an old ally and because it adds to Russia's clout in global oil markets, but above all, because it furthers Putin's central foreign policy objective, the formation of a global anti-American coalition of countries that can frustrate Washington's purposes and usher in a more multipolar world. Putin's efforts seem designed to taunt the United States which announced the Monroe Doctrine in 1823, warning foreign powers to stay out of the Western Hemisphere. The big question for Washington is, will it allow Moscow to make a mockery of another American red line? The U.S. and Russia have taken opposing, incompatible stands on this issue. And as with Syria, there is a danger that if Washington does not back its words with deeds, a year from now, 
We will be watching the consolidation of the Maduro regime, supported by Russian arms and money. The administration has been tough on Russian involvement in Venezuela. Trump himself has even declared Russia has to get up. But that is an unusual sentiment from Trump, who has almost never criticized Vladimir Putin and often sided with Russia on matters big and small. As former ambassador to Moscow Michael McFaul has written, Trump has a remarkably consistent pattern of supporting Putin's foreign policy goals. Trump has threatened to withdraw from NATO and has announced the removal of American troops from Syria. He has publicly disagreed with his own intelligence community's conclusion that Moscow meddled with the 2016 election. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. Now, I have never alleged collusion or conspiracy between Russia and Trump, writing merely that we should wait to see what evidence Robert Mueller presented. But the real puzzle remains. Why has Trump been unwilling to confront Putin in any way on any issue? And will Venezuela finally be the moment when Trump ends his appeasement? Fareed Zakaria needs to come out, issue an apology, and correct the record. Because what he said there is not just wrong, it's not just demonstrably wrong, it's one of the single most untrue things I've heard on cable news in the past year, and that includes Fox News. What he's doing is arguing from a narrative and not arguing based on the evidence and the facts. He just said Trump you know, never stands up to Russia and his policies are the opposite of that. Listen, man, I'm going to answer his question directly. And he should be addressing this stuff because if you fancy yourself a journalist or a reporter and you're on CNN and you're doing a segment where you are uh, purporting to show information to the world, this is unacceptable and inexcusable. What has Donald Trump that are, uh, done that are anti-Russian policies? Let's see. He armed Ukrainian rebels who are currently fighting Russia, and by the way, many of them have neo-Nazi ties. That is directly against what Vladimir Putin and the Russian government want. Directly against what they want. In fact, it's so against what they want, Barack Obama refused to do that policy because he said it was a needless escalation with Russia, and why would we want to escalate with another nuclear-armed power? He's already wrong, by the way. Fareed Zakaria has already been debunked, but I'll continue. He's done a NATO buildup on Russia's border. That's also not what Putin and Russia wants. He sent warships to the Black Sea, not what Putin and Russia wants. Um, he did the head fake about getting out of Syria, but we're not getting out of Syria. He has since announced we're staying in Syria, and we're doing a permanent occupation of Syria, Putin's top ally. That's not what Putin and the Russian government want. Um, he's been yelling at uh, Angela Merkel in Germany to axe a Russian oil deal that they have, because he wants to do the oil deal with Germany instead, so he wants to take business from Putin and the Russian government and give it to the U.S., that's the opposite of what they want. Um, he also has not approved an Exxon oil deal that was supposed to go through with Russia. He axed a multi-billion dollar Exxon oil deal that was supposed to go through with Russia, U.S. companies and Russia. Again, not what Putin wants. He, look at what we've already done in Venezuela, massively against what Putin wants. And then, of course, pulling out of the nuke treaty, the opposite of what Russia wants. So when Fareed Zakaria says this, he is just wrong. And he's feeding into this Red Scare McCarthyite narrative of, uh, uh, tut, tut, Mr. President, you better show the world you're not Putin's puppet. And how, do they, how does he do that, Fareed Zakaria? 
be more hawkish, be more hawkish, escalate further, you know, go to the brink of war with Russia over Venezuela. Do you guys not see now how this is insanely dangerous, what's going on? That now the only way for Donald Trump to prove, I'm not Putin's puppet, is to keep escalating and be more hawkish and more hawkish and more hawkish, which is dangerous. You know how the left is supposed to resist? They're supposed to go in the other direction and say, Mr. President, I want you to sit down and make peace with this other nuclear-armed country. But if you were to do that, everybody would say, aha, Putin's puppet. What a deranged situation that we're in. And by the way, um, Russiagate will not die. It refuses to die. There was a story that broke last night. New York Times originally reported it. Uh, Washington Post backed it up. And they say that some people on Mueller's team are saying Barr's summary was not totally accurate. That's what the New York Times report says. Now, did they name anybody? No. And again, they put the word some. Some of the people on Mueller's team say this is not accurate. Now, Washington Post steps in, and what do they say? It has to do more with the obstruction charge than anything. So, in other words, the findings on obstruction were like, mm. he kind of did it, but we're not going to be proactive in doing anything about that. We're just going to say he kind of did it. This is my guess as to what's in there. Um, but, again, the main charge of collusion, nothing. So now everybody's melting down and they're doing their one last, because, you know, how many times have we seen these stories where they're like, the breaking, the walls are closing in. Is this the beginning of the end when it comes to Trump's presidency over Russia? How many times have bombshell, bombshell, walls are closing in, beginning of the end, bombshell, walls are closing in, beginning of the end. This is like the last gasp of those efforts. And they're trying to imply like, ah, see, Barr's summary was totally off base. When, again, the reality is, it, on obstruction, I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if Barr biased it more towards, like, yeah, nothing's going to happen here over obstruction. Um, but according to some sources on Mueller's team, it was not exonerating him on obstruction by any stretch of the imagination. But, again, that, so that begs the question. Obstruction, but... If there's no collusion and he's obstructing, people are arguing, well, what, if there was no original crime, then how can you say he's obstructing? How's he obstructing justice if there was no original crime? Now, the response is that, legally speaking, um, there doesn't have to be an original crime for you to obstruct justice. So technically, you can get him on a technicality in that sense. But again, the new reports are not, there's no indication that he actually did collusion. The indications are, well, what we all thought was obstruction when we saw it when he fired Comey, for example, he did like eight things that reasonable people could say, yeah, that appears like obstruction of justice. So apparently the report does not like exonerate him on obstruction, but on collusion, there's no evidence and they can't proceed on that. But now we're seeing like another story being blown out of proportion. And this is my main concern. This is what I'm most afraid of is that we have this political climate now where people like Fareed Zakaria, who otherwise, you know, you could think he's somewhat reasonable, but now he's partaking in, honestly, what is a caricature. Like, this is the quintessential example of the shit that I've been worried about, which is a media climate where they're literally cheerleading Donald Trump to be more hawkish. And my response to this is, no, dude, the original instinct of everybody in the country of, oh, my God, this guy's a thin-skinned lunatic buffoon, that is true. And if somebody's a thin-skinned lunatic buffoon, the last thing you want to do is prod them to be more hawkish. I want to prod him to be more in favor of peace. So this is, it's bad. 
and Fareed Zakaria shouldn't have done this, and he should honestly come out and apologize and correct the record, because he said something at the end there that's insanely off-base, and I feel like he would know it if he did any research or cared to get the right answer. Okay. All right, let me do one more, then we'll take our first break. It's hot in here, man. Chris Saliza is CNN's resident clown, and um, he continued his streak of saying incredibly dumb things. This is his comment on Pete Buttigieg. Take a look. He's a skinny guy with a funny name. And he's the hottest name in Democratic politics. Sounds like I'm describing this guy, right? It's actually this guy. That guy is Pete Buttigieg. That's B-U-T-T-I-G-I-E-G. Boom, nailed it. Bing! Boot Edge Edge. That's how you say it, except fast. Like it says on the t-shirts his campaign sells. They really do. Look. Honestly, just call him Mayor Pete. So it's a lot easier. Rolls up the tongue. When Mayor Pete started running for president in early 2019, people, they weren't calling him much of anything. Because, well, they had no idea who he was. Unlike bold-faced names like Beto O'Rourke or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden, Mayor Pete was considered a very minor player in the very crowded 2020 sweepstakes. After all, he is young, 37 years old, relatively inexperienced politically. His highest office is his current one, Mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and has a last name that is harder to pronounce than Saliza. Saliza. Except that politics is an unpredictable business. Voters have a tendency of sometimes surprising you. The Buttigieg bump, again, began around early March when Mayor Pete did a town hall that was hosted by CNN. I know, self-serving, but accurate, at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. The mayor got the sort of exposure he hadn't been able to generate to that point. And he honestly nailed it. I have more years of government experience under my belt than the president. a low bar. I know that. I also got more years of executive government experience under my belt than the vice president, and more military experience than anybody to walk into that office on day one since George H.W. Bush. So I get that I'm the young guy in the conversation, but I would say experience is what qualifies me to have a seat at this table. He was funny, smart, and above all, spoke and seemed like a normal person. Suddenly, Buttigieg was everywhere. Where are you on the ideological spectrum? I consider myself a pretty strong progressive, but I also don't consider the left-center spectrum to be the most useful way to uh, look at our politics right now because I think it's gotten jumbled up uh, both by the current president and by the pace of change. After that appearance, Joe Scarborough said that there hadn't been so much reaction to a guest on his show since, well, this guy. A clip of Buttigieg speaking Norwegian, he's conversant, because of course he is, with a reporter from Norway, then went viral. Buttigieg's campaign.
campaign announced that he had already secured the 65,000 donors that he needed to qualify for the first Democratic presidential debate in June in Miami. He announced in late March that he was trying to raise $500,000 more for his campaign in the week or so before the end of that fundraising quarter. He raised that amount in 24 hours. All told, Buttigieg announced he had raised $7 million in roughly two months as a candidate, a total that, yes, is going to put him behind the likes of Sanders and O'Rourke, but will put him way in front of where he and everyone else thought he would be at this point in the race. This, right now, is Mayor Pete's moment. Every candidate running for president wants one. Not all get one. The question going forward is whether Buttigieg's moment is like that time when Herman Cain led the 2020 GOP field. Nine, 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 baby. Or more like when that other skinny guy with the funny name started surging in the 2008 Democratic race and really never stopped. There's reason to believe Buttigieg will last beyond this current 15 minutes of fame. And the biggest reason for that is, well, the mayor himself. Why are you only showing us the positive things about Pete Buttigieg? Because that's all we could find, all right? No, I'm being serious. There's no dirt on this guy, like nothing. Remember that presidential races, especially in primaries, are as much about personality and backstory as they are about policy. That's mostly because the candidates running for a party's presidential nomination tend to agree about the broad policy solutions needed to address things like immigration or health care or the economy. The way that you stand out in a field where everyone has very similar policy plans is by the force of your life story and the way in which you tell that life story. And Buttigieg, though he's only 37 years old, has a hell of a story to tell. He's a Harvard grad, a Rhodes Scholar. He was deployed in Afghanistan for seven months in 2014 and was a naval reservist until 2017. He was elected mayor of his hometown at age 29. He is both gay and married. In short, there's lots of there there when it comes to Mayor Pete. His search has been fueled less by some catchy slogan than by a genuine excitement among Democratic primary voters about his personal story and candidacy. I do not know how Chris Eliza has a job. I really don't. Actually, no, scratch that. I do know how he has a job. That kind of milquetoast, bland, dead wrong commentary is exactly what CNN loves and bathes in. This is why they hired a guy like him, because he says stuff like that. I mean, just look at the ending there. He said, um, well, you know, the Democrats, I mean, let's be serious. They agree on policy, all the Democrats on the stage. So it's more about life story than anything else to the voters. Citation needed, dog. What are you talking about? It's more about like, no, the Democrats are uniquely hyper-focused on policy, especially this election cycle. Are you kidding me? That's what it's all about. How else could a guy, could a, you know, 77-year-old dude with bad posture, a Jewish atheist with a strong New York accent, um, how could he be the front runner? Is everybody just like, oh, Bernie and his sex appeal? No, it's because his policies stand up above and beyond the other candidates. I mean, seriously? We're having this conversation? He just said the Democrats agree on policy. Really? So Amy Cloudboot Jar and Bet on My Stork have the same policies as Bernie or Tulsi or Elizabeth Warren? 
I mean, that alone is so embarrassing and proves you're so bad at your job that that alone, if we had a system that made sense that was a meritocracy, your bosses would be like, Chris, we got to let you go, man. We can't let such an egregious error like this slide. I mean, there's a giant difference on stage between all the candidates, by the way. It's not just saying that Bernie is a lot different from the worst candidates like Amy Klobuchar. No, it's each candidate brings something very unique and different policy-wise. Andrew Yang's big thing is UBI. Tulsi Gabbard's big thing is ending the regime change wars. Elizabeth Warren's big thing is Wall Street regulation and a, a progressive economy and progressive taxation. Bernie Sanders' big thing is virtually the entire progressive canon, so Medicare for all, free college, living wage, so on and so forth. So uh, how can you say something? I could, I could talk for an hour just on how dead wrong that comment is from Chris Eliza. Honestly, you should come out and apologize and correct the record. He, well, they largely agree on policy. They largely agree on policy. The Democratic candidates largely agree on policy. What planet are you living on, dude? Unbelievable. Um, and then he goes on to say, well, you know, so mostly what people care about is their life story. Citation needed again. What the fuck are you talking about? And then you heard what he described as, there's a lot of there there for Pete uh, uh, Buttigieg. What does he cite for that? He's a Harvard grad, he's a Rhodes Scholar, and he's gay. So in other words, identity politics, yay, forget policy, he's gay. So check, that's a leg up above the other candidates. I mean, what a caricature of what somebody on the left is supposed to think. Like, oh, let's no, do no critical analysis, and just like in 2016, Hillary's a woman! Oh, she's a woman! She's of the other gender! Yes! Yes, one leg above the other candidate. She's, she's a woman. The fuck is this, man? He's gay, he's a Rhodes Scholar, and he's a Harvard grad. So in other words, he's an elitist, and he's gay. These guys have become a parody of what we say they are. The corporate media idiots in their ivory towers looking down on everybody else. Like, that's what this is. Really? Is that supposed to pass for a solid analysis? Is everybody supposed to go, well, I wasn't sure about Pete Buttigieg, but, I mean, let's be serious here. He's a Rhodes Scholar and a Harvard grad, and he's gay. He's got my vote. Jesus Christ. Um, now, of course, since this is Chris Eliza, notice what he just flat out didn't bring up, policy. He didn't bring it up. He didn't bring it up. In his whole fucking segment, doing a puff piece on Pete Buttigieg, he doesn't bring up policy. Not once. What does that tell you, by the way? Like, oh, God, I love this guy. This guy's having his moment. Moment of the sun. Isn't he amazing? Tell me how amazing he is. Isn't he great? Look, we're doing a segment. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he wonderful? Weird. Why are you not bringing up any policy? I'll tell you why. Here's what Jeff Stein says, who's done a great job reporting on this stuff. Pete Buttigieg's policies per AIDS, electoral reform, D.C. statehood and no electoral college, plan for automation's impact on jobs, very specific there, huh? Improve U.S. cybersecurity, comprehensive climate change plan, Equality Act, Medicare for all, but keep private insurance. So, oh, very similar. All the candidates are so similar on these issues. Are you kidding me? So what he supports is public option. He supports a public option. Doesn't support Medicare for all. He supports, at best, Medicare for America, which is a public option type thing, which is Beto O'Rourke's idea, which is not Medicare for all. It keeps the for-profit health insurance companies being a main part of our health insurance system, and they're the problem. They're rapacious for-profit middlemen that act like a mafia. Bernie says, let's get rid of the mafia. You can still get supplemental private care, but the default is everybody covered. So, but these guys say, eh, 
kind of cool with the mafia being in place. Now, furthermore, we covered the story in Vice where Buttigieg was asked, like, a, a Vice reporter followed him all day, and he's like, dude, you know, I see you talk very progressive, but you don't bring up, like, policy specifics. And Buttigieg's answer was like, that's right. I think Democrats focus too much on policy specifics. I'm not in favor of doing that. What? And then um, I found out yesterday, okay, he just came out against free college. The more you learn about this guy, the more you're going to be like, oh, I see what he is. I see. By the way, um, Nathan Robinson from Current Affairs, great magazine, by the way, he did a comprehensive look at uh, Pete Buttigieg and his career and his life, and he read his book and all that stuff. I'm going to leave that article in the video description box here. You should all read it. Very detailed, very long, goes into specifics with all the problems about Mayor Pete, okay? But it's comprehensive, and you need to take a look at it, because this is the type of thorough analysis that CNN should be doing, but they would never do. So credit to Nathan J. Robinson over at uh, Current Affairs. I'm going to leave that article about Pete in the video description box. Take a look and read the entire thing. But I just found out yesterday, he came out against free college. He originally said he was for Medicare for all. Then he started hedging recently and said, but but keep private health insurance. So again, edging to the right, edging to the right, edging to the right. And then the other thing I learned, and this was the final straw for me. I mean, the policy thing really was the final straw for me. When he's like, yeah, policy, policy, we'll figure it out. We we don't want to box ourselves in. What the fuck are you talking about? He spoke out against Chelsea Manning. Oh, okay. Yeah. Strike one, you're out. I'm done with you. You spoke out against uh, an American hero, Chelsea Manning, who leaked information that showed us our government was murdering civilians with our money in our name and laughing about it. That's who you're going to speak out against, Chelsea Manning. That's what you're going to do. And fucking Trevor Noah in that clip, who Saliza cut to, we couldn't find anything bad about this guy. <laughs> John Stewart is rolling over in his grave right now. I know he's not dead, but he's rolling over in his grave right now. Because Trevor Noah has turned that fucking show into a dumpster fire of establishment groupthink liberal thought. That's all it is. It's not edgy. It's not leftist. It's not truth-telling. It is just fucking down-the-line liberal. You can see this. Sh- it's MSNBC with a couple of bad jokes sprinkled in. That's what it is. Sorry, Trevor, but it's true. You're not edgy or truth-telling. And it, Tre- Trevor Noah used to be like that, but then there was some PC outrage over some offensive jokes he told, and he immediately caved and started acting like a little establishment bitch. And that's where he is right now. And uh, there you go, man. There you go. Th- this is Chris Saliza. And notice something. This is important, too. Bernie Sanders has been the front-runner since the beginning. How many positive pieces have you seen of, uh, about Bernie Sanders in mainstream media? How many positive pieces have you seen? If there are any, I miss them. Maybe there's five or fewer, but I've seen zero. So no, in fact, they just did hit pieces. We'll get to some of them later, but they just did hit pieces comparing them to Donald Trump, okay? So Bernie Sanders is the front runner, no positive coverage. Buttigieg charges to up to like fourth place in the polls, and there's already been like 14 fawning articles and think pieces about him. Oh, man, Pete! Oh! Oh, Mayor Pete, you've got a whopping 9% in the polls. You're going to be a force to be reckoned with. Mm. This, you know what this honestly reminds me of? Exactly what happened on the Republican side, where they tried to force feed us every single... How many times was like Marco Rubio on the cover of Time magazine or some shit as the Republican savior, and then Chris Christie was as well? Like, oh, the next big Republican thing. 
all these magazines of all these Republicans where they try to say, how about this one? Take this establishment one because they're not going to rock the boat too much. And then the, the voters, even on the Republican side, were like, eh, fuck off. We don't like them. And then eventually they got Trump. And my guess is that Bernie Sanders will kind of curb stomp his way to the nomination, even with a lot of the biases against them. And in a weird way, they might actually help him because now there's people who get really riled up when they see how unfairly he's treated. And then that makes people support Bernie more. And what were they talking about? Um, Mayor Pete raised $7 million or something like that. Um, how much money has Bernie raised? $18 million. From, ready for this? 900,000 individual donors. That leaves everybody else in the dust. I mean, that's like, nobody's even close. But does Chris Eliza do fawning pieces on Bernie Sanders? Nope, he's done none. In fact, he's done the opposite. He, he took part in the hit campaigns against him. So this is what, buckle up, because this is what's going to happen for the rest of the election. But the thing, I think the thing that gets under my skin the most is, like, Chris Eliza and CNN are convinced that this piece on Buttigieg, or as we call him, Pete Buttigieg, um, they think it's, like, objective. Like, no, 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 me? Who, me? No, I don't have an ideology at all. I'm just telling it like it is and giving, like, a, a, a dry, you know, a dry factual piece on this wonderful candidate who's charging. That's all it is. No, the reality is you have a perspective. It's a pro-establishment perspective, and you're massively biased in that direction, but you pretend like you're objective when you're not even close to objective. Let me ask you, would an objective person have said there's basically no difference between the Democrats on policy? So obviously voters are going to look at personal stories. That's not an objective thing to say. That's an insane thing to say. That's a factually wrong thing to say. But he's the one that's got the job on CNN. Go donate to Bernie again right now. <laughs> the more I watch this, the more I'm like, here, Bernie, take my money. I'm already doing a monthly uh, donation. I'm doing a monthly donation to Bernie. So everybody should do the same because I can't. I can't. And the crazy thing is, policy is enough. Buttigieg is a centrist, but the fawning media attention over these characters makes me dislike them even more because it's unearned praise. It's unearned praise. And um, this is what we have to look forward to. I'm telling you, every candidate except Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, and Andrew Yang, every Democratic presidential candidate except those four will at various times get nothing but fawning adoration. And those four will never, ever, ever, ever get it. Ask yourself why that is. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, I got John Kasich getting everything dead wrong. And then... Um, Republicans break out their dirty electoral tricks. That's what happened with Mitch McConnell. So we'll talk about that and much, much more. We'll be right back.
All right, we're back. <clears throat> Sorry for the extended break there. I had to eat something. Anyway, it is fucking hot in this studio, bro. It is hot in here. No heat on or anything, but it's hot. Probably should have turned the AC on, tell you the truth. All right. <clears throat> Go to John Kasich. This is one of the stories of the day, in my opinion. So here we go again. Um, I have to go after CNN, and I have to go after John Kasich, because they spoke about the election and Bernie Sanders, and they managed to get absolutely everything dead wrong. Bernie Sanders, he just posted a big fundraising number, 18.2 million raised in the first quarter. But here's how Washington Post columnist Dana Milbank put it in a column. The column was titled, Bernie Sanders has emerged as the Trump of the left. And here's a bit of it, Governor. Meanwhile, Sanders himself remains untouchable in a Trumpian way. Claims of mistreatment by male staffers from women who worked on his 2016 campaign, yawn. His resistance to releasing his tax returns, whatever. The idea that Democrats need a unifying figure to lure disaffected Trump voters in key states, never mind. What do you think of that? Bernie Sanders isn't going to be president. It's just not going to happen. And I'm not saying that. You know, I just got to call him like I see him, Kate, and I, I don't see what do you that. Think? I, tell, tell I, think, I think you're seeing a lot because he's too far to the left. He, he's just way out there, and that is not where people are. And people, you know, they don't like that left-wing ideology. Um, they don't want to like a lot of right-wing ideology either. What we're seeing today is co- sort of an absence of really exciting new ideas, and that's where these candidates have to go. Now, you don't win an election just based on ideas and what your health care plan is, but it's your ability to communicate that people think that you get them or that they believe that you get them and their problems, and underpinning that are the issues that sort of speak to that. Mm-hmm. Bernie, with his issues, Kate, he's just out of the mainstream, and that's the problem. And, look, the Democrats are worried about this. And, you know, the funny thing about it all is Nancy Pelosi is more and more becoming the moderating influence on that party, which is really fascinating to see. And Republicans are now giving her grudging respect. But Mm -hmm. I'm hearing Democrats now begin to say, we need to take back our agenda. And we are not defined by the new green, you know, the new green deal. We're not defined by Medicare for all. And you're beginning to see their candidates kind of move away from it. That is the laziest, most pervasive, and deeply wrong take in American politics today. And it's been for... Decades now. Let me ask John Kasich something. If his philosophy was correct, that, well, I said to Bernie, far left. What we need, what we need is more somebody more in the center, who's like more moderate and stuff. If that was true, why didn't Hillary Clinton win? Hillary Clinton ran a deeply centrist slash moderate campaign. She picked Tim Kaine for VP. Why didn't she win? Why didn't you win? I got another one for you. If he just swears, oh, the left, they, they, they can't win. They can't win. Why is it Sherrod Brown won his reelection to be senator in Ohio, and he ran an unapologetically left campaign, 
And Joe Donnelly, the state over in Indiana, lost his re-election campaign, and he ran a right-wing campaign as a Democrat. Why is it? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? You tell me. Why is it that we went from having zero Justice Democrats to seven Justice Democrats elected? Why is that? Why is it that Ro Khanna and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar are the three most recognizable congresspeople in the country right now? And they all happen to be Justice Democrats. Why is that? Why is that? Is it, did, did AOC get the largest social media following because she's unpopular? Is that what happened? Did, uh, did Bernie Sanders become the front runner on the Democratic side because he's unpopular? Is that what happened? Do people like Bernie not because of his policies but because of his posture and his general sex appeal? Is that what it is? Let's go through some of his specific arguments. I like how he admits something at the end where I'm sure his, the Democrats who told this to him would be like, shh, you're not supposed to say that part out loud. But he said, hey, Democrats are now worried about this, that their party is going to be defined by the Green New Deal and Medicare for All. To which I say, good! It should be! That's good. That's a good thing. But yes, the old guard, the old guard, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, even Barack Obama, they're the ones who are like, oh, no. Oh, this isn't going to work well. Oh, God, let's not go in the direction of policies that are actually popular. So he's, he's admitting something there. Oh, Dems are worried about the left taking over the party. Good, they should be. And the establishment has lost repeatedly, and they've sucked. They made it so that Donald Trump won the goddamn election, and we're supposed to take them seriously? But this is Kasich's left friends are all establishment left. So he's telling you what the establishment left thinks, and they're scared, and that's good. Um, and he said, he flat out said, it, Bernie's not going to be uh, president. Hmm, okay. We'll see. We'll see. As of right now, he's the favorite. Let's just call it what it is. And now, does that mean he's going to win? No, we don't know. We have to wait and see. But he's convinced he's not, and he shouldn't be. There's no reason to be that convinced. Um, and by the way, these are all the same people who thought, Trump would never win, and Trump won. Shows you how good their predicting skills are. And then he flat out says it, hey, Bernie's too far to the left. He's not where the people are. He's, quote, out of the mainstream, to which my response is, you are factually dead wrong. You want to know why, John Kasich? Because you don't look at polling data, because you don't care about what regular people think. But when you look at polling data and you care about what regular people think, it's very clear that you're wrong and Bernie is right. The overwhelming majority of the American people agree with the overwhelming majority of Bernie Sanders' platform, which, again, is why he's so popular, because he's a populist left crusader fighting for the issues where the American people agree and what they want. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, and the wars, so on and so forth. Even the Green New Deal, which you're shitting on, they, they polled it not too long ago. It was like 80% approval rating or something insanely high. And finally, he says, well, it's a... The problem is the absence of new ideas, and we need new ideas. Now, what John Kasich means is new neoliberal centrist ideas. That's what he means. But, of course, by definition, those are not new ideas because that's what's been running the country into the ditch for the past few decades. But the reality is Bernie's ideas actually are new in terms of um, being implemented at the national level because the last time we saw any ideas, any policies remotely resembling Bernie's was all the way back uh, during FDR's time. So the Democratic Party went off the rails, became a pro-Wall Street party, pro-private health insurance industry 
party, pro-military industrial complex party. And then now Bernie's coming along and he's saying, well, no, we should go back to our roots and bring these, these new ideas into play that people haven't seen during most of our lifetime. In most of our, throughout our lives, you watching this, chances are, unless you're from the silent generation, you have not lived in a country that has embraced social democratic ideas. We have the remnants, the echoes of it from back when FDR implemented some of it, but we've gone away from that dramatically. And it all started really in the 1980s when Reagan started taking a hatchet to the social safety net and, and slashing taxes for the rich and embracing deregulation. But Bernie's saying, no, we need to, these old ideas which have been dead, I'm now going to bring them back and they're new ideas to us because we haven't lived in a country with Medicare for all. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why it is exciting because they are new ideas. We haven't seen them in our lifetimes and they pull massively popular. So, but here's the point, guys. John Kasich is dead wrong about everything he's saying. He, last time he ran for president, he got like negative eight votes and he thinks he could lecture people as to how to win elections. Bitch, you can't win your own election. What are you talking about? You got destroyed in the presidential election. Trump obliterated you. But the worst part is, and you didn't see the ending, when Kasich's done talking, the CNN host doesn't push back at all. You want to know why? Because that is the assumption of CNN. The assumption of CNN is the establishment is correct. And the establishment's opinion is, oh, well, you Democrats need to run to the center, and they need to be neoliberal, and they need to compromise with the crazy people on the far right, and they can't do social democratic ideas, which, by the way, social democratic ideas are internationally centrist and moderate. But he's stuck in this American context, this elitist establishment context, where social democratic ideas are viewed as far left, and the CNN goons don't know enough to correct it or don't care. And so he runs his mouth about Bernie's never going to get elected, and he's not where the people are. Even the polls show he's exactly where the people are. And does the CNN go, oh, hold on now, i got to push back on you, because according to the polling data, the American people are with Bernie when you go through the issues. She says nothing of the sort. She agrees with John Kasich, who's wrong about everything he's saying. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why this show exists and why you're watching it right now. Again, it's not because I'm good at what I do. It's because they're so bad at what they do. Where all I got to do is do the bare minimum and tell you the truth. And then you go, oh, wow, that was refreshing. That was really nice. I like that. Let me go donate a couple bucks to Kyle on Patreon because this is something that I got to take value from. And now I know at least somebody's not saying obviously, preposterously, preposterously, preposterous shit. So... It is frustrating. I get just as mad as you do when I watch this stuff, and um, it's embarrassing. And CNN really needs to step their game up. If you want to be news people, do your fucking job. Fact check. Tell the truth. Here you have an establishment politician who's been deeply unpopular, and he gets on there and gets to run his mouth about his philosophy of politics. You don't even check him. Bernie's the front runner with an insanely high popularity rating. Issue for issue, the American people agree with him, and this idiot's like, oh, he's too far left. He's not where the people are. And CNN's like, shh. Oh, yeah, totally. That seems so good, so uh, reasonable. So I'm just annoyed, man. I'm annoyed with how off-base they are. Because it's not even like they make little mistakes. Like, the entire framework of the discussion is fucking wrong. And it doesn't bother them. They just fucking plow forward. It's so annoying. I can't take it. John Kasich, you're terrible. You're an embarrassment. CNN, you're terrible. You're an embarrassment. Okay, next.
So Republicans decided to break out some dirty tricks to nobody's surprise. This is Vice News. They say Senate Republicans just rammed through another sweeping rule change that will allow President Trump to further speed up the remaking of the nation's courts with conservative judges. On a strictly party line vote, with just two Republicans breaking ranks, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell deployed the so-called nuclear option and blew up the Senate's filibuster rule to push through a package that will enable the GOP to approve faster judges, to approve judges faster, by requiring just two hours of debate for district court judges and sub-cabinet nominees instead of the previous 30 hours required. McConnell claimed that the change is necessary because Democrats have used delay tactics and required the GOP to use up the entire 30 hours of debate on appointees with broad bipartisan support. Quote, what we've got going on here is totally and completely unacceptable, McConnell told his colleagues in a heated speech on the Senate floor ahead of the vote. So um, I need the Democrats to remember this for when they're in power. Because Mitch McConnell sent out a tweet storm in the midst of all this, too, talking about, oh, my God, the Democratic obstruction is at record levels. And Merrick Garland started trending on Twitter. Why? Because everybody in response to Mitch McConnell was like, hey, dipshit, what about Merrick Garland? I need you to understand that under Obama... The Republicans broke the filibuster record, and they broke the obstruction time period for a Supreme Court justice. And now he's going to get up there and say, the obstruction is a Democrat. They never agree with Trump on anything. Except we cover the story, they gave Donald Trump more NSA spying powers. I wish they didn't, but they did. They gave Donald Trump a multi-billion dollar increase to the military budget. I wish they didn't, but they did. So the Democrats repeatedly bend over backwards and give Trump what he wants and give the Republicans what they want. And then Mitch McConnell comes out and sticks a fork in their eye anyway and tells them, Oh, you're so obstructionist, even though I broke the record on obstruction. Pay no attention to that. But you're so obstructionist. And now I will go nuclear, do the nuclear option. Okay. You want to play that game, bitch? Let's play that game then. You, are you sure? You sure you want to play this, this game? See, and this is, again, another reason why it's so important that we get unapologetic populist left swashbucklers in there. Because even Bernie's not been great on this because he was asked about, oh, like, what do you think about um, getting rid of the filibuster to get your agenda passed? And he was like, no. FDR was famous for, like, doing whatever he could to get his way. Lyndon Johnson was famous for twisting arms to get whatever he wanted. That's what we need, man. That's what we need. Now, I get it. I get the idea of people want to be principled and, and, and stick by precedent and be reasonable and care about process. I agree with all that, and I care about it deeply, too. But you have to understand the empirical reality as to what happens in this country when you have Republicans that have zero morality and zero concern about process and they're willing to do whatever the fuck they want to get their goals. And then you have Democrats who are playing pogs. I said this on the previous show. Republicans are playing rugby. Democrats are playing pogs. That's what we're seeing. And look at this. This is exactly what's happening. Yeah, we're going to nuke it. We're, we're going to uh, you know, get rid of the filibuster. We're going to uh, fast track all these, approval, these judges' approvals, which deeply changes the country and makes it so that we have a permanent conservative majority on the courts, which makes it so that you know, the court system is massively biased because you have activist judges in a right-wing direction. 
And what are the Democrats doing the entire time? If we get power, we'll make sure that we don't fight for our agenda and we don't change the filibuster rule. Now, to like Ro Khanna's credit, for example, he's been talking about um, we have to like do term limits for the Supreme Court. Like that's one of his ideas. I think that's a great idea because now the Republicans are being super strategic about it, and that's why they went Kavanaugh, who's super young, to put on the court, so he'll be on there for so long. So yeah, term limits. That's one way we could go. But bottom line is. You need to have an unapologetic lefty president who's going to say, okay, listen, I didn't open this door. You opened this door. You're the ones who are like, oh, yeah, we're going to do whatever we can to get our agenda. Okay, two could play at that game. You want to play that game? Fine, we'll play that game. And you can cry and you can bitch and you can moan when it's under my presidency and we get left-wing policy after left-wing policy passed and implemented into law. But all I'm going to do is turn around and say, you started it. You started the precedent. I'm just following the precedent you set. So let's grow some teeth because it's absolutely necessary. Because I'll tell you what, Mitch McConnell doesn't give a fuck. He's going to do the bidding of his donors, full stop. And he's going to do the bidding of far-right ideologues, full stop. So, okay, you want to play that game? Two can play that game. Try me. Okay, I'm going to get to the story on Ro Khanna and Bernie's campaign in just a second. But first, I'm taking you for a walk. We're actually going to turn on the AC because it's a thousand degrees in this fucking studio. Nino liked it. Oh! One of the things I never tell you guys is I always feel like an old man when I get up at the end of the show. I feel like a super old man because I get stiff as I sit there and I'm talking with my hands and I'm alive and vibrant. And then when the show's over and I get up to walk, I'm like stiff, half hunched over, shuffling. Certainly doesn't feel like I'm 31. By the end of the show, it feels more like I'm 57. No disrespect, no offense to the 57-year-olds out there. And let's make sure we get the vents open. All right. There we go. Vents open, bitch. You want more here? Vents open? Yep, that's open. All right. Okay. Talk about our buddy Ro Khanna. Rare segment where I will not be agreeing with Ro Khanna. Okay, here we go. So we have an interesting story here in the San Francisco Chronicle. Take a look at the headline. Bernie Sanders campaign chair, campaign co-chair, excuse me, our buddy Ro Khanna, he says no mudslinging against Democrats. So apparently... um, Apparently, one of the things that Ro Khanna said to Bernie's team in order for them to bring him on as a co-chair is, hey, listen, we're not going to go negative, are we? We're not going to go negative on other Democrats. 
Uh, most important thing is obviously we beat Donald Trump, and in order to do that, we should have you know unity, cohesion on the left, and we shouldn't do gutter politics. We shouldn't do attack ads on other Democrats. And Bernie's team went, yeah, we're with you 100%. And this is, this is what Bernie, despite what a lot of centrists will have you believe, this is exactly how Bernie ran his campaign in 2016. Remember famously in the debate, he said, I'm sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Bernie said that. There were multiple times where Bernie almost bent over backwards to not criticize Hillary and just stick to his own policy agenda. Um, now, my reaction to this is I half agree and half disagree with Ro Khanna. So if the standard we're setting is this, hey, listen, you do not go on the offense against other Democrats. You do not throw the first punch. You do not draw first blood. Then I totally agree. I totally agree with that. You're running for president, and you want to present yourself as serious to the American people and ready to help them on the issues that are directly concerning to them. So, yes, your focus should be on the stuff that Bernie always focuses on. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, end the wars, Green New Deal, all stuff like that, being pro-union to help workers, progressive taxation, getting money out of politics, all that stuff. And Bernie will put that stuff front and center. Here's where I disagree with Ro Khanna. And to, I, to be fair, I'm not, I don't know if that's 100% true. He would have to clarify. Here's what I agree with, 100%. Counterpunching. So you don't throw the first punch. You don't draw first blood. But if Kamala Harris or Beto O'Rourke or any of these people, I don't care who they are, if any of them come at you, you better go back at them. You better go back at them. And actually, despite what the media says, this is one of the reasons why Trump was very effective. Because even though he's a lunatic and he's unhinged and he says insane stuff, people got the sense, myself included, that usually he would counterpunch. And the media was actually very dishonest in this respect because they would do, you know, they would go after Trump viciously and then Trump would fire back and they would be like, oh, Oh, how dare you call us fake news, good sir? You're standing up against the fine American tradition of the freedom of space and the Constitution. And everybody had this sense of, like, you're kind of being dishonest, aren't you? Like, it's one thing to attack Trump and then just be like, yeah, I attacked you and this is what I said. That's fine. But they would attack him and then when he would respond, they'd be like, oh, good sir, how could you? And, it was, and they were so self-important and smug and all the mainstream media hosts were like, We've now crossed the line in American history we've never crossed before. One candidate openly slamming the wonderful people and the heroes of the mainstream media. And it was just so over the top and so smug. But I think the American people got like, okay, no, even though he's a dick, he's counterpunching is what he's doing. He's counterpunching. He's not throwing the first punch. He's counterpunching. And counterpunching feels like justice, whereas if you're not counterpunching, if you're throwing the first punch, it doesn't feel like justice. It feels like you're an ass. And so what I would say to Bernie and Arokana is, you cannot be naive. The establishment hates you. They hate you. They despise you. You need to acknowledge that. You're not going to be able to placate them. You cannot placate smear merchants, because the nature of a smear is that it's not fair. So if you say, hey, that's not quite fair, here's why that's not fair, they don't care. 
Because it wasn't fair in the first place when they smeared you. That's what a smear is. So like with Bernie, when Bernie, you know, he was smeared as, uh, your campaign was too white and too male. Ugh. Now, do the numbers prove that? No, it proves the opposite. <laughs> that didn't matter, because that was the smear. And so what did Bernie and his team do? Well, we hired mo- new people, and it is 70% female and overwhelmingly women of color. Next day, I go on Twitter. First tweet I see on it is somebody saying, to white male, and this is still a problem that needs to be addressed, and the Bernie bros are a giant issue. Because that's the nature of a smear. You can't placate it. You can't appease it. That's not the way. They're not going to go, oh, even though I was unfairly smearing you and I hate you, now that you've been totally logical and reasonable and you've demonstrated something to me, I now concede and like you. No, they don't like you, Bernie. They don't like you, Roe. They despise you. They hate you. You stand for real change. You actually want to end the wars and do Medicare for all and do all these wonderful policies that their careers depend on that not happening. All these Democratic strategists who've been dead wrong about everything from day one, they put all their eggs in the Hillary basket that Hillary lost. They thought they'd be in the White House now. They're not in the White House. And now they're giving people advice on how to run campaigns when they're proven they're the last people on the planet Earth that should be running campaigns because they were dead wrong about everything. You think they're going to be fair to you? You think you could placate them? You think you get to play patty cakes and, oh, we'll just stick to the issues and everything will be okay. They are going to smear you relentlessly. If you don't counterpunch and you don't respond and you don't put people in their place, well, then what do you want me to tell you? That's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you. So what I would say to them is don't be naive. I get it, Ro. If you're saying no offensive, don't ever throw the first punch, don't ever do first blood, totally agree. But if you're saying hold your fire, even when you're under ruthless smear attacks, I go, you're crazy. You're crazy. You're going to let them set the narrative? You're going to let them dominate the discourse? And you're going to pretend to be above the fray? No, you have to counterpunch. You have to set the record straight. And people will realize it's justice if you are counterpunching. You don't throw the first punch, you counterpunch. Because they're going to come at you, and especially this time. You want to know why? Because he's the front runner. At a certain point in time, when this clown car of fools that are most of the other candidates, they got nothing to run on. To be fair to Tulsi and to be fair to Elizabeth Warren and Andrew Yang, they do. They're okay. But all the centrist and moderate candidates, they have nothing to run on. They really want to be president because they want to be president, because they're self-aggrandizing narcissists. So they have nothing to run on. They can't make a positive case. So what are they going to do? They're going to try to tear down the guy who's in the lead, Bernie. And if his goal is, or his plan is, I'm above the fray. I'm just going to keep, no, that's a terrible idea. And it's also, by the way, training ground for Trump. If you can't school Amy Cloudbootjar when she smears you, then how the hell are you going to stand up to Donald Trump when he inevitably smears you? What are you going to do? I'm also above the fray against Trump. No, you've got to learn how to counter argue and counter punch. And again, this is why, listen, I know, I know, I'm just a talk show host and everything. But my, I have a stellar record when it comes to predictions. And it's because I know a thing or two about politics and what works with the people and what instincts are legit and what is overcoached and wrong. And I really hope that Bernie's new campaign manager and Bernie's top people understand that this is a dirty game we're playing. 
Whether or not you want to acknowledge it, it's a dirty game. Whether or not you want to admit it, it's a dirty game. And when you're in a dirty game, you're going to get mud on you. It's just a matter of whether or not you let them fling all the mud on you and they're pristine and crystal clear or you counterpunch and put some mud back on them. So you can't be naive, man. You know, I, I was just watching the other day the documentary of Roger Ailes. Terrible guy. Horrendous guy. Sick guy. Gross guy. Also political strategic genius. 100%. Everything he touched in terms of can- candidates turned to gold. You want to know why Mitch McConnell is a politician to this day? Roger Ailes. You want to know who got Mitch McConnell elected to the Senate? Roger Ailes. He took Mitch McConnell, who has the personality of a dead possum, and he made that guy a senator. How did he do it? It wasn't by playing patty cakes and, I'm above the fray, and we don't go negative. No, it was by saying, I know how to run this shit. I know how to counterpunch, and actually, in his case, wasn't maybe as much counterpunching as just being dirty from the beginning, but you can, you can win by just counterpunching. And uh, you cannot hold your fire through the whole thing, because then you let everybody else define you, and when you don't respond, people go, well, why isn't he responding? So we can't be naive, guys. You can't placate the smear merchants. You can't play nice and, and, and win your way to the White House with smiles and puppies. It's a grind, and it's a battle, and you have to acknowledge it for what it is. And I hope these people are willing to heed my advice. Is that a saying, heed my advice? I'm going to look that up. I think it is. I think it is. It is, Okay. It's an old word, meaning to listen and follow. Wonderful. I got stuff in that memory bank, man. It's just deep, deep in there. And sometimes it comes out and sometimes it doesn't. Okay, next. So I have a devastating and terrible story about our healthcare system here to talk to you about. Take a look. Americans borrowed a staggering $88 billion in the past year to pay for health care. A new survey finds about one in eight had to resort to borrowing to afford care in the previous year, according to a West Health Gallup survey released Tuesday. Also, 65 million adults say they had a health issue but didn't seek treatment due to cost. Wow. Nearly a quarter had to cut back on spending to pay for health care medicine. Quote, Not only do you have a real significant number that are deferring care, foregoing care altogether, you also have a big chunk that are getting the care but but having to borrow to get it, said Dan Witters, Gallup senior researcher. There are few Americans out there who are safe from the American healthcare cost crisis. These statistics are the latest examples of how the nation is struggling with the high cost of medical care. The United States spent more than $10,700 per person on healthcare in 2017 federal data shows. That's more than any other country, yet America consistently ranks near the bottom of major health um, indices, major health indices, I've never seen that word before, among developed nations, the survey said. And that is my phone going off in the background. Okay. I just turned it off. That was Jimmy Dore, by the way. It's kind of funny. Progressive Worlds Unite. 
Okay, so um, $88 billion in the past year to pay for health care. That's what was borrowed by Americans, $88 billion. 65 million adults had a health issue but didn't seek treatment due to the cost. This is a failed system. This is a broken system. By the way, you know who one of those people was? Who one of the one of those people was? One of those people was? One of those people were? <laughs> I, I am like, as for a talk show host, I sure don't know how to talk because there's at least one incident a day where I'm like, I say something and I'm like, hmm, is that real? Did I just make up that phrasing? Okay, my father was one of these people. My dad was. He passed away in 2011 from lung cancer. By the time he went to the hospital, he was already, it was already stage four. It started in his lungs and metastasized to his spine. He had surgery. They found out when they did the surgery, it was basically impossible to take out via surgery. And they scheduled like, okay, we're going to try to do chemo and radiation on this bad boy. But it was already stage, stage four cancer. And he was dead within a week maybe two weeks after the surgery where they found they couldn't take it all out because it would have risked further injury to try to cut it off of the spine or something, something of that effect. Um, He didn't go to the doctor for the longest time because he didn't have health insurance. That's a lot of people. And also, so not only is that system fucked up, also my dad wasn't the brightest bulb. When he first started getting back pain, he went to a chiropractor because the chiropractor is much cheaper. And the chiropractor would tell him, like, no, come on, keep coming back. We'll fix this. We'll get your back pain out. Just got to keep going through our routine and going through our schedule here and going through the steps with our appointments. And basically, the chiropractor was telling him, you don't have to go to a real doctor. You come here, and we'll crack your back until it's fixed. Well, it turns out that was a deadly decision on my dad's part, and it was deadly on the part of the chiropractor, and I would argue it's probably gross negligence on the part of the chiropractor, to insist that, like, no, you don't have to go to a real doctor. Just come here. We'll fix it. We'll just keep cracking your back, and somehow we'll get rid of the pain. Well, come to find out that fucking pain was cancer. It was cancer. So think of all the ways. So obviously I have, I have a seething, passionate hatred for pseudoscience and non-medicine that pretends to be medicine, including chiropractors, okay, They're just glorified backcrackers and massage therapists pretending to be more than that, which is fucking dangerous. So I hate pseudoscience, and I hate our healthcare system, because if my father, if we had a Medicare for All system, and my dad felt pain, or that first time my dad felt a little thing in his back, or first time he was coughing all day, and he thought, this doesn't feel like a cough or a cold, but I'm coughing, this is weird. If we had Medicare for All, there's a chance he would have just went to the doctor right there right up front, and then, oh, look at that, we caught it in stage one, or at stage two, and your life could have been saved, and he could still be alive today. So, in all seriousness, my father is probably one of those between 32,000 and 45,000 people that die every year because they don't have access to basic health care. And it's not like, just for the record, it's not like he wasn't somewhat okay financially, it's a long story. Him and my mom split up a long time ago. There was a divorce, and it was a little ugly. And then, you know, as time went on, he didn't make the best financial decisions. And so there was a time when he could have been considered upper middle class, 
by the time that he got sick, he was honestly probably lower middle class because he had a lot of debt. Um, but he still was better off financially than a lot of people in this country. And he was a victim of our healthcare system being so shitty that he, he was thinking, I can't afford it to go to a real doctor, so I'm going to go to the chiropractor. And then eventually he had to go into the emergency room. And when he went into the emergency room, he basically got his death sentence. You're stage four, you don't have long to live, and that is what it is. And I was naive throughout the whole experience. I was thinking, like, oh, he'll be all, he'll be all right, probably. Because when I was a kid, there was one time I remember he had this excruciating pain from a, a tooth issue he had. Um, and it was like a nerve problem or whatever. But I remember him being in excruciating pain and, like, laying in bed and just, it was horrendous. But then, you know, whatever. He, I guess he got some dental work or something, and then two weeks later he's fine. And so in my naive mind, and I wasn't young, this was 2011, so I was born in 88, I don't know, you do the math on that, or 2010 this was, so 88, 98, 2008, so I was 22 at the time, that's not young, um, but I still, I was looking at them, you know, you think like your parents in a weird way, you think like they're not immortal, but a little bit bulletproof, if you will, but yeah, it'll be all right, we'll, we'll get through it. But no, it was naive, and this was nothing like the tooth pain from when I was a kid. That's when the tooth pain thing happened. It was the cancer was 2010, 2011. But um, I thought, like, oh, this will – subconsciously, I thought this will probably be like the tooth thing where he's in and out, you know, he'll be all right. Went in there, stage four cancer, dead not too long after that. So that's our healthcare system, bro. Listen, 65 million adults say they had a health issue but didn't seek treatment due to cost. 65 million. 65 million. The system is utter trash. Anything and everything should be done to reform it. We need to get Medicare for all. It's a life or death issue. People can't wait. People, how, many, how many of my dads are out there right now? Right now. Right now. At least hundreds of thousands, probably millions. Not all these 65 million have life threatening issues, some percentage of them do, and $88 billion had to borrow in order to pay for health care costs. Again, one of the top causes of bankruptcy in America is health care bills. That doesn't exist in Canada or Norway or Denmark or Iceland or Sweden or Finland or Australia or the UK or France or New Zealand or any of the other places with a single-payer system. doesn't exist. doesn't exist. depressing. I wish I didn't have to report this news to you, but I have to report this news to you. And now, listen, go ahead. Go turn on CNN. Um, Now, to be fair to some of the mainstream outlets, and I don't make this distinction enough, and I should because it's an important one, but yes, mainstream outlets, usually when it comes to print, they do a decent job and they'll cover real stories that matter deeply, okay? But that's just print, When you turn on CNN, turn on the TV, or turn on MSNBC, or turn on the nightly news, they don't talk about the serious issues like this, man. You just got more of an education on our healthcare system from me, the numbers I just read you, and my personal story than you'll ever get from a mainstream outlet. And that's depressing, and that's sad, and that's pathetic, and it shouldn't be the case.
Okay, next. All right, here we go. So, Hansy Joe Biden? Uh, come on, dude. Look at that. That is so funny. <laughs> That's our nickname for him, Hansy Uncle Joseph. So, Hansy Uncle Joseph was caught yet again. Um bragging about horrendously shitty policies that he supported. This clip that you're about to see is from the early 1990s. Now, some might say, hey, get over it. It was old. He doesn't believe this anymore. But this is important for a very specific reason. It's important because it shows you that he's not like Bernie and that Bernie was willing to stand up at a time when the dominant sentiment was against the thing that was correct. And Bernie was willing to say, no, this is wrong. And I'm going to argue for the proper thing. He was defending gay people in the early 1990s when that was unheard of politically. Unheard of. Now, when you flip the script here and look at Joe Biden, let's see what he was saying, particularly about law enforcement issues. And again, this is 1991. The fact of the matter is, we've gone from there all the way up to saying, under the leadership of Senator Thurman, and I'd like to suggest that I take some small credit for it, myself as well, and others, the presiding officer, that there's now a death penalty. And we passed it a couple years ago. If you are a major drug dealer involved in the trafficking of drugs and murder results in your activities, you go to death. And a number of other severe penalties. We changed the law so that if you are arrested and you are a drug dealer under our forfeiture statutes, you can, the government can, take everything you own, everything from your car to your house, your bank account, not merely what they confiscate in terms of the dollars from the transaction that you just got caught engaging in. They can take everything. We have laws in the last several years where we don't allow judges' discretion to sentence people. Flat-time sentencing. You get caught, you go to jail. So Joe Biden here is bragging about expanding the death penalty for major drug dealers. So in other words, no longer, hey, you can kill somebody who has killed somebody, that's the original idea or the you know, most common conception, recent conception of the death penalty. He's like, okay, only for the worst of the worst crimes, maybe, do we have it. Joe Biden's like, no, we should have the death penalty for major drug dealers. Would Joe Biden say the head of you know, Anheuser-Busch should be put to death? That is a major drug dealer if I've ever seen one. How about the head of uh, Merck? or a giant pharmaceutical company that's, uh, you know, sending opiates all throughout the country. Should that person be put to death? No. We know who he's referring to here. Uh, but he thinks that they should get the death penalty, and then, I don't know, maybe even more 
disturbing is the idea that he's bragging about supporting civil asset forfeiture, and he's bragging about restricting the discretion of judges. So he's saying they should have, um, you know, mandatory minimums, which everybody now views as insane because context matters and details matter. But he's like, no, we should have mandatory minimums. And again, do he's bragging about civil asset forfeiture. He said, quote, the government can take everything you own from your car to your house to your bank account. He's bragging about that, man. Come on, dude. Come on. Whenever it was politically convenient, Joe Biden went hard right wing, hard right wing. Just know who he is, okay? If you come out and say, you know what, I support that, fair enough. But know who he is because now he's going to try to rebrand himself and pretend like he was trying to pretend the other day his record is like as good as Bernie Sanders. What are you talking about? Then there's other video of him saying, I'm not Bernie Sanders. Which is it? So we got another Hillary on our hands with flippity-flop, flip-flop, 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 have no core, and really what's driving him is the narcissism and the self-aggrandizement. Dude, you had your run. You had your run. You were vice president. You ran for president at least two times. Um, You were a senator forever. You and your big hands, go, go lay on a beach somewhere. Legalized robbery by cop. That's what Joe Biden supports. Legalized robbery by cop. No due process, no habeas corpus. They could just take your stuff and they flip the burden of proof and say, you need to prove to me that you can get your stuff back. Does that sound like a progressive position or a fair or logical position? No. That is an insane pro-authoritarian, pro-law enforcement, hardcore right-wing position. Okay, let me take a final break real quick. When we come back, we'll go through uh, Fox Business Goes After the Pope. A group of Catholic priests in Poland decided to have a book burning... And then uh, there's an issue about free speech. They're going after the left. So this isn't a story you've heard a million times of the right on college campuses, but they're going after the left now. So stay right there. We'll be right back.
right, y'all. Let's let's go after Fox Business Network. Stuart Vaughn is back in the news. So Fox Business Network decided to take some shots at the Pope. Interesting. Um, This is over some recent comments that he made about immigration and the wall. Take a look. will become prisoners of the walls that they build. Liz, Pope's getting political again. Yeah, he's getting political again. And you know what the issue is? It has to be seen in the broader context of what the Pope has been saying about Central America and South America. Twenty former presidents of these countries said to the Pope, your message about social harmony in Venezuela and reconciliation in Nicaragua falls flat when you have militarized dictatorships doing systematically, uh, systematically killing and imprisoning your own people. So when you see the Pope making statements about a border wall, it has to be taken in the context of how the Pope approaches all of Central America and South America. It's very weak in his response to communism and socialism in the other parts of the world, and he's weak on the border wall as well. Yeah, but he was in Morocco saying this, right? Thousands of uh, migrants who want to leave North Africa and the Middle East to get into Europe, right? And Europe is having a real hard time. The point is he's not criticizing the governments that cause these these migrant outflows. Right? That's right. the issue. No, he's, he's, not. Not, he's not doing that. No, he's, he's not. It's after the fact. He's referee. not fixing the problem at all. It, it, at the can you imagine Pope John Paul if he had taken Pope John Paul had taken this approach to Poland? Yes, oh, uh, with very different outcomes. That's right. You know, I'm really just amazed at how hacky they are. It's one thing to make an argument against the Pope's position, which is totally fine, because they don't agree with the Pope on the issue of immigration. But the way they make the argument and how they frame the argument and the, the arguments they use are just like they have to know they're being hacks. So they start by saying, here we go, the Pope's getting political again. Now, have they ever said that when somebody got political, but it was on their side? No. So if the Pope said something that was conservative, they wouldn't do a segment, ah, here we go, the Pope's getting political again. So the argument of like, I'm objecting because you're getting political That's not an actual objection because you wouldn't make it in a scenario where the Pope said something political on your side. So, I don't know, maybe forego that dumb criticism because it's a non-criticism. And then I like when uh, the guest says, you know, the the Pope's uh, lovey-dovey approach to immigration. I mean, all this falls short when you're dealing with dictators, hey, asshole, the U.S. supports 73% of the world's dictatorships. Notice how these kinds of people, they never, ever criticize the U.S. for their relationship with the Saudi government, for example. Saudi Arabia is currently committing a genocide in Yemen. Saudi Arabia beheads people for witchcraft and sorcery and apostasy. We're talking about a deeply theocratic authoritarian dictatorship. And... The response is not, oh, we must stand up against these dictatorships. They only, use, they only use that argument when it's an official state baddie, so somebody who's not aligned with the United States. Forget the fact that we back 73% of the world's dictatorships. Let's all focus on Maduro because he's a dictator who's not, who's not in our network of dictators. Again, sh- 
sheer hackery. They don't have a principled stand against dictators. They're just doing the bidding of the deep state, which wants, you to, which wants to propagandize against particular dictators who are not beholden to U.S. corporate interests. That's the reality of the situation. Um, and then I like how they say, well, the Pope is not criticizing the governments that are causing the migrant crisis. You know what led to a giant migrant crisis? The war in Iraq. You know what else led to a giant migrant crisis? The war in Syria, which the U.S. and Russia are exacerbating. So we've been responsible for many of these migrant crises. Even in our own hemisphere, you do know that a lot of the people fleeing from very dangerous countries are fleeing because of the mega cartels who are ruining their lives. People live in you know, under constant threat of violence. If I'm not mistaken, Guatemala is actually more dangerous than Iraq was at the height of the Iraq war. So you either join a cartel and maybe die that way, or you don't join the cartel and you die anyway. So extreme crime and violence and people try to escape to make a life for themselves. And is she going to criticize U.S. drug war policy and say, hey, we should stop waging the drug war because then the uh, mega cartels will lose their power you could put the cartels out of business if you legalize tax and regulate drugs in the U.S. Is that what she's arguing for? No, of course she's not arguing for that. But they're just so hacky. Their arguments are so bad. Popes, the Pope is getting political. What do you think? Jesus was not political? Is that what you think? You think Jesus wasn't political? If you read the New Testament, there are countless parts that talk about how you should do good by the sojourner which is the old school way of saying immigrant. Treat them like your brother. I mean, this is in the Bible. Treat them like your family. And they act like, what, Jesus was apolitical or Jesus was like a, a big-time right-wing capitalist who was a war hawk? Are you kidding me? Would Jesus support military intervention in Venezuela or would he have supported the war in Iraq? I, I mean, this is hilarious. They ignore, they ignore the parts of the Bible or of Jesus' message that are left. And Jesus was a commie before communism was a thing in many respects. Most of Jesus' moods in the New Testament are like super hippie. So it's just, they're so selective and, and nonsensical, and they're really adherents to the ideology of U.S. empire and republicanism, as in the party. Like, that's really what Stuart Varney is and what his guests are here. And it's embarrassing. I mean, the idea that Jesus would turn away some, like, poor child refugee from Syria or Iraq or wherever, or from Guatemala, it's like, no, he obviously wouldn't do that, so why are you pretending like that is the case? I got another one on Catholics. That's pretty random, I know. <laughs> So this next story made me laugh quite a bit. This is in The Hill. They say, a group of Catholic priests in Poland have reportedly burned books they deem sacrilegious, including those from the popular Harry Potter series. The BBC reports that an evangelical group called SMS From Heaven Foundation posted pictures on its Facebook page showing Harry Potter books atop a burning fire pit along with an elephant figure and a tribal mask. A caption in Polish, in Polish quotes scripture from the Bible and says, we obey the word. Many of those 
who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver, reads the caption, from the book of Acts posted by the group. Another excerpt from the book of Deuteronomy reads, burn the images of their gods, don't desire the silver or the gold that is on them, and take it for yourself, or you will be trapped by it. That is detestable to the Lord your God. When a religious group starts burning books, and particular works of fiction, you know why they do it, right? And we know this because Pat Robertson has made this abundantly clear, and we've discussed this in the context of his show throughout the course of Secular Talk. They feel threatened. They feel threatened by the existence and the popularity of a book like Harry Potter. And they think that they can't sell their voodoo magic to people if they, get, if they scratch their voodoo magic itch from the likes of a book like Harry Potter. And I find that so embarrassing because it shows how deeply, deeply insecure these folks are in their beliefs. I mean, if you really thought, like, your ideology was nailing it, you wouldn't have to burn books from other ideologies, or in this case, not even an ideology. It's just a work of fiction. You know what Pat Robertson did this with? Dungeons and Dragons. He would rail against the game, Dungeons and Dragons. He thought it turned people onto witchcraft or whatever. It shows, they, I mean, it shows that they have no confidence in their ideology. Or else, again, you wouldn't have to burn works of fiction because you think it's competition to your nonsense. So what I would say is to everybody who's part of this group, do you not understand that this is really embarrassing? And I was raised Catholic, and I know many Catholics, but do you not understand that even they would look at you and be like, you're embarrassing. Like, this is cultish activity, what you're doing here. You know who else burned books historically? Dictatorships. Dictatorships who wanted to, like, cleanse the cultural palate and rebuild it from scratch in the image of their what they wanted to portray, which is usually how awesome and wonderful the regime is. This is the equivalent of that, but doing it for an ancient religion and a cult, basically. We're not going to let you in, indulge in, like, works of fiction that are magical because we want to teach you about Jesus's magic and walking on water and, you know, turning water into wine and all that stuff. I just, I can't, it's hard to fathom people basing their lives on things that in today's day and age we know are obvious myths. I, you know, I have nothing against people who are religious, but they're just modern religious, secular religious. You know, the idea you ask them and they almost treat their religion like a nationality in a way. Like if somebody asks me, hey, you know, where are you from? Oh, I'm an American. Like I'm an American. I'm a New Yorker and I'm an American. Like it's just, that's just a factual description of what is. So when you talk to people, you know, who are religious, and we've all met these kinds of people, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm Catholic or whatever. I'm, I'm Christian. I'm Jewish. I'm Muslim. Or... And what they're saying really is I'm from a family that is that, and I, am, I guess I partake in the traditions of that, but I don't put there's – no, there's no, like, actually, like, oh, I bet Jesus really walked on water and is the son of God or whatever the case is. It's just, like, just kind of like a – simple description in the same way you would describe your ethnicity or, or your nationality or whatever. 
this is so far above and beyond that and so different that it's kind of scary that that's in, on the same planet where you're at the point where you're so gung-ho about your religion that you're like, I will burn books that are not my book. My book is the best book. The wonderful book says I should burn all other books. I'm not weird, and this is totally modern. And if you disagree with me doing this, you're a bigot. What? No, I'm allowed to call out you doing, abiding by silly myths and call it what it is, which is you're abiding by silly myths. So let's stop pretending like we can't do that. We can do that. And in today's day and age, we should do that. Because it's time to evolve past this stuff. My last name is Polish, by the way. Kalinski is a Polish last name. And these are my Polish brothers and sisters or brothers in their homeland here. So, hey guys, stop making us look bad, bro. I'm more, I think I'm more, I think I'm more Italian than I am Polish because my mom is mostly Italian. My dad is, has a Polish last name, but is probably a little less than 50% Polish or whatever. Who gives a fuck? Anyway, um, burning Harry Potter books is a bad look. You look silly and it's obvious you view it as competition. Okay, final story of the day, y'all. And it's a campus story. You know what that means. It's free speech time, bitches. So there was an incident on a college campus that apparently spiraled out of control. This is in AZ Central, Arizona Central. They say two students at the University of Arizona will be charged with misdemeanors after a video showing them protesting a Customs and Border Protection event on campus went viral. UA President Robert Robbins, that is a pretty funny name, uh, announced Friday, the potential charges stem from a Border Patrol presentation to a student club, the Criminal Justice Association, on campus on March 19th. A video of the incident showed two Border Patrol agents in a classroom giving a presentation with people outside the door recording them and calling them murder patrol, murderers, and an extension of the KKK. After the agents leave the classroom, a group followed them until they left campus, chanting murder patrol, video footage on social media shows. Conservative media and commentators shared the video on social media and blogs as an example of free speech issues on college campuses. In the letter sent to students posted online, Robin said the protest represented a dramatic departure from our expectations of respectful behavior and support for free speech on this campus. Uh, now, they also go on to say, uh, UA police determined Friday that they, will, that they, quote, will be charging two students involved in the incident with interference with the peaceful conduct of an educational institution, which is a misdemeanor. A class one misdemeanor could result in up to six months of jail time, and UA police will also continue to investigate the matter for potential additional criminal violations. Okay, so let's walk through this. There's an event on a college campus where they invited Border Patrol people to give a speech. I guess it's some sort of, I don't know, law enforcement enthusiast group on campus and they invited them and these people came and they gave a speech. And there were people who were disrupting it as protesters calling them Murder Patrol and an extension of the KKK and, and whatnot. Okay, so first of all, Do I agree that Border Patrol is an extension of the KKK? No. (laughs) I think that goes a little bit too far. Um, Now, having said that, are there legitimate criticisms of Border Patrol? 
Of course. Now, these are not, this is not ICE, to be fair. Um, but when you talk about ICE, there's a lawsuit going on through the federal court system right now where they've been accused of having literal slaves. So they take people who just cross the border and they make them do forced labor. And it's at a private prison facility, which we all know the problems with private prison facilities are endless. So, I mean, that is like extremely disturbing and happening right now with our money in our name. And a lot of people on the right refuse to criticize law enforcement agencies because they're somewhat authoritarian where they think like, no, they have badges, so they must be serious. No, they're engaged in insane violations of human rights where they're doing forced labor, and that's not okay. Literal allegations of slavery that courts have said have merit. So I am going to criticize the shit out of ICE, and I am going to criticize Customs and Border Protection when they fuck up. Now, having said that, Customs and Border Protection is not ICE, and so it is a little different. Now, so there are legitimate criticisms of them, and should these students be allowed to protest these speakers? 100%. 100%. But let's be clear also that if they're protesting to make an argument and say, here's why these guys are bad, that's perfectly cool. If they're protesting to say, we want to censor and deplatform and ban these speakers from Customs and Border Protection, well, no, now you're authoritarian and you're saying, I don't believe in free speech. And I think they should be censored and deplatformed and shouldn't have any say at all, which is dumb. I don't agree with that. But here's the hilarious twist of irony at the end of this story here. So I'm against the protesters if what they're saying is, we want you off our campus and we don't want anybody from a border patrol to speak or whatever. I'm against that because you have to let people speak. You have to. Again, you want to protest them saying, here's why these guys are terrible and we're going to explain it. Totally cool. And in fact, I support your right to do that. And I would probably agree with some of the criticisms you make, not the KKK one that goes way too far, but I would agree with some of the criticisms. But in the hilarious twist of irony at the end here, because up until this point, it is fair to criticize the protesters and say, you guys might be trying to deplatform them and take away their ability to speak, and that's not cool. But as a direct reaction to this, the protesters get now apparently going to be arrested and charged with crimes. So now we come full circle, and now there are literal violations of the free speech of the protesters on college campus, on this college campus. So the left-wing protesters who are against the Border Patrol are having their free speech rights violated. Now, listen, I I don't agree with the idea of abolishing the border or Border Patrol. I think we should have a border, like all countries have borders, but also have very open-minded, tolerant, left-wing regulations that are reasonable, that aren't insane, where you, like, put kids in cages and shit like that, okay? But, so, point is, I don't necessarily agree with the protesters, or at least I don't think I do. But there is now no doubt that their free speech rights are being violated because they have every right in the world to protest the Border Patrol people, and yes, even to be loud and obnoxious and aggressive about it, and even to be wrong about the shit they're saying against the Border Patrol people. They're allowed to say, you're the extension of the KKK. Now, again, I don't think that's true, (laughs) but they're allowed to say that. They're allowed to call them murder patrol. 100% they're allowed to say that. That's free speech. But now, in a weird twist of irony, their free speech rights are being violated, and now we will wait and see. 
will conservative commentators who were screaming about how much they love free speech when the Customs and Border Patrol people were giving their talk, they say they love free speech, all these conservatives. Now will they turn around and say, hey, listen, that cuts both ways, dog. That means I don't want anybody getting charged because they protested. Are you kidding me? No. No, release them. No arrest, no criminal record, no jail time, no fine, no nothing. Freedom of speech. I don't agree with them. They said crazy things. I don't like what they said, but they have every right to say it, so let them go. They're not going to say that. So honestly, in a weird way, I think both, both sides on this issue and in this story are hypocrites because the conservatives, no doubt, screamed about, oh, my God, you're shutting down the free speech of the Border Patrol people who are coming here to give a talk. How could you? I believe in free speech. And then now that there is a literal violation of free speech because fucking charges are being brought against them for speech. Now that there's uh, charges against the left, they're going to say, oh, that's how I love free speech. I meant that when it's our side. Go ahead and charge the protesters because they're bad. But also keep it real. The left-wing protesters are, are hypocrites too. Because if the whole point of protesting the Border Patrol people was to say, we're trying to deplatform you and censor you and shut you the fuck up, well, then you're saying, I'm against the free speech of the Border Patrol people. But now that you're literally being charged for protesting and your free speech rights are literally being violated, now you're going to turn around and say, my free speech! How can you give me a criminal record for just protesting? Ah. So now here comes my smug ass. I come full circle to tell you guys this. Now do you see the value of free speech? Now do you see it? The reality is the Border Patrol people should be allowed to talk, okay? People who come to protest them should be allowed to protest them. But the point of the protest shouldn't be, I'm going to try to shut you up completely, because then that's totally illegitimate. And, of course, the flip side of that is, nobody should get a criminal record for trying to protest, no matter how obnoxious it is. So free speech cuts both ways. And there's going to be only a very fringe, tiny minority of people on this issue and in this story who really understand the entire thing I just laid out for you. Because most people are looking for a political home. Oh, I need to find a home. Which side am I on? No, no. If you really want to be principled about this, you take the position I just took right now, which is they have, the Border Patrol people have a right to speak. People have a right to protest. And they should all be allowed to speak, and they should all be allowed to protest, and nobody should get criminal records, full stop. Now, if they wanted to, if the idea was, okay, you can protest, and that's cool, but we're going to have to let the event proceed, well, that's totally fine. And if that means you've got to protest outside, or you, know, you can't shout down the speaker, then yeah, you've got to enforce the rules to allow them to speak. But certainly, certainly no criminal record. Because that is a, an egregious, literal violation of free speech from a legal perspective, like against the First Amendment type thing. So um, really interesting story, and it exposes quite a bit about the hypocrisy on this issue. Okay. All right, we're out of time. We're out of show. We're out of stories. All right, guys, love you. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Secular Talk, out.